Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast this Groundhog Day. Remember last year when we just made jokes about Groundhog Day and didn't realize the joke was going to be on us? We're going to talk to Iris Garfinkel about the vaccine and vaccine production in this country and Sean O'Shea with an incredible story from Pearson Airport. Let's get to it. Has this ever happened to you? You just you you wake up in the morning and you think, oh, man, what what day is it? Man, I've had the weirdest dream. A lot of people, it's not just today that feels like Groundhog Day. It's the whole past year. Oh, Justin, you're reading my mind, dude. JT on the money there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's Groundhog Day. Justin Trudeau, by the way, with an announcement outside of the cozy cottage about vaccines, and we're really going to get into that because it it's a bit of a jaw-dropper. Jaw-dropper. But a year ago today, you know, we were making these stupid groundhog jokes without really understanding how relevant they were about to become to our lives. And now, here we are again. Suddenly, the prognostications of furry rodents evokes... What exactly? I ask you, how do you feel when you hear this from Shubanakity this morning? How do you feel? I don't see a shadow. Do you, Julie? No shadow. No shadow. I believe that means an early spring, Sam. Enough of this snow. Time to plant gardens for your vegetables. (laughs) Isn't that exciting? That was from the event this morning. Time to plant vegetables. We didn't. I, do you see a shadow? I don't see a shadow. Does that that gives me some nostalgia for the before times when, you know, I might have done an entire radio program on how ridiculous it is that you know we do this every year and that, you know, far off in the future that there will probably be you know, PhD discussions about whether late twentieth century, early twenty first century, uh, Western North Americans actually did worship at the altar of a large rat. But that's a, that's another story. There's a comfort in the tradition, is there not? So here I offer for you a rodent roundup. Puxatawney Phil came out of his burrow in Pennsylvania and saw his shadow according to the Groundhog Club's Tom Dunkel. There's a perfect shadow cast of me. Six more weeks of winter there will be. Because of COVID, this year's event took place without an audience. Staten Island Chuck taped his event when there wasn't even snow on the ground and did not see his shadow, which means an early spring. Ohio's Buckeye Chuck also predicts an early spring, while Connecticut used a hedgehog named Phoebe, who agrees with Puxatawney Phil's forecast, six more weeks of winter. I'm Julie Walker. Staten Island Chuck? Like, everybody's got one of these right now. I find something comforting in all this meaningless ritual, which, by the way, is designed essentially to bring tourists in and to film newscasts. That's what this is for. Because generally this time of year, you know, there's not a lot going on in the news, and you think, well, here, I can do a whole six-minute piece on what a chuck. So I don't even, what kind of animal is a chuck? I don't even know. I don't know. If you've ever had the pleasure of covering one of these events, and I've covered them remotely, I've never been to one, but here's how they work. And this is how I'm getting to my point. Trust me, I'm getting there. Here's how it works. They got a big buildup. 
And they really sell it to the crowd. This is, of course, in the before times this year. It's all virtual. But they sell it to the crowd. Oh, they're, hump, they're piping it up. Here it comes. Here comes the animal. And, and, the, and then they really sell it. And then they pull it out. It's a show. Just like COVID communications here in the province of Ontario. A show. Because on Monday morning, from the Minister of Education and the Chief Medical Officer of Health in this province, there were no answers. Nothing. Just a promise of sometime we're going to pull this animal out of this box over here and we're going to tell you what it's on. We're going to, to hang on. Then Monday late afternoon, this tweet, this is from Stephen Lecce, the Chief Medical Officer of Health, confirming to the Premier that on Wednesday he will finalize his advice. The government will provide certainty to parents on Wednesday with the dates for reopening. Oh my goodness, every parent in the province has said to themselves, why are we waiting till Wednesday? What are you going to learn between now and then? You couldn't, you couldn't answer any questions. No information in the morning. Now we're going for Wednesday. Welcome to Ontario. Stay with us. We'll be right back. That is what's happening in the province of Ontario. Instead of just giving us the goods, we go to break for no, no apparent reason. So, this is from Caroline Alfonso in the Globe and Mail. David Williams, the province's chief medical officer of health, said Monday that there was, quote, not an exact number per se when asked about the metrics being considered in reopening schools. Quote, we would like them all down, ideally quite low, he added. Okay, so we they won't tell us what metrics they're going to use. Like, how long does the shadow have to be from this rodent for you to allow kids to go back to in-class learning? By the way, Ontario, the only province not doing that right now. I don't get it. Every parent's pulling out their hair. I understand if you're listening to me in Ottawa right now and you're like, kids went back on Monday. Well, fine. That's great. Good for you. The rest of us out here are trying to figure out how to get it done. And we need some answers. So the other thing we heard from Stephen Lecce and from Dr. David Williams, before they promised us, okay, we'll get answers on Wednesday because there was such a hue and a cry, hue and a cry, all day Monday about what was that all about? The other thing they said is when asked about these metrics, like, okay, so what is it you're looking for? What's like, what's the thing that you're looking for? They're like, well, it's up to the individual public health unit. What? The individual public... So that means that your local public health unit, whether that is Dr. Davila in Toronto, Dr. Lowe in Peel, geez, I know so many of them now. I should get, like, trading cards with all of the local public health unit uh, officers. But they have sway over whether or not schools should reopen or not. For example, in Brant, this is what we heard, that the numbers in Brant, in that county, are good enough to reopen, but the local public health unit said, officer said, nah, not comfortable. Meanwhile, in Ottawa, it was the other way around, and there was a real uh, impetus and a push to open schools again, so they did. How does that make any sense in the province of Ontario? We have a patchwork like that. 
And one of the things that they're promising us about why it will be safe to send kids back and that it will be safe even in the face of higher numbers than we've seen before. I know they're on the way down, but nevertheless, higher numbers than we've seen before and concerns about the VOCs. Man, that's a variant of concern. VOCs. We're all worried about the Brazilian and the UK and the well, this thing and then that thing. But if we have the testing, if we can get the testing going, then maybe we can be on top of it. And who decides how we test and when we test and how we use these rapid tests? The local public health unit. And here is the head of OSSTF. This is the uh, Secondary Teachers, uh, Secondary School Teachers Federation, Harvey Bischoff, saying, uh, what? The ministry has given no direction on how and when those tests will be given. They've abdicated all of their responsibility to local public health units. So while they're claiming there will be uh, enhanced asymptomatic testing, there's actually no program laid out whatsoever. That is Harvey Bischoff. So there's no no plan. We have no plan. Welcome to Ontario. We'll be right back. Wait, hold on. Don't go to break. Wait. But that's just kind of the way it is. So when do we find out if there is a plan for public health units and these asymptomatic testing and how that's actually going to work? Well, I guess we're just going to have to wait until Wednesday when Lecce and Williams will pull the rodent out and decide whether some unknown metric indicate whether or not kids go back to in-class learning or don't, or when, or how, or any number of other questions. It's frustrating. We're getting an update from the province of Ontario. The Dofo show today at 1 o'clock, along with Rick Hillier, Doug Ford, will be updating the province on the vaccine rollout plan, and uh, this news just breaking now that Ontario is delaying the target date for all long-term care and high-risk retirement home residents to get their first COVID-19 shot. The new date is now February the 10th. It was originally February the 5th. They have to push it back because a lack of vaccine, the vaccine shipments. Of course, we know this, that the vaccine shipments had been drawn down. We didn't get any last week at all. Uh, We're getting some. And all of that, of course, is leading to very, very real concerns about where Canada stands in being able to get more vaccines. And the Prime Minister making an announcement this morning in front of the Cozy Cottage in, in Ottawa, and in response to a question about domestic production, the Prime Minister actually said, well, there have been some quote-unquote lessons learned. Here's the Prime Minister with more on the announcement itself. Two companies, Precision Nanosystems and Novavax, are now on track to manufacture vaccines right here in Canada. This is a major step forward to get vaccines made in Canada for Canadians. To begin with, we've signed a memorandum of understanding with Novavax to produce their COVID-19 vaccines at the new NRC Royal Mount facility in Montreal. Pending Health Canada approval, tens of millions of Novavax COVID-19 doses will be made right here at home. That is Justin Trudeau with an announcement uh, this morning talking about some domestic production plans. There are some big ifs there. We still have to have Health Canada approval of the Novavax vaccine, and we still need to finish building 
the National Research Council facility in Montreal. The Prime Minister only saying in his announcement today that it will be ready sometime later this year. He said summer, and then he said the ministers would have uh, more information later on today. And the question really is for the Prime Minister and for this administration, is this the time that we needed to start thinking and planning and making announcements about domestic production? We have seen uh, storm clouds on the horizon about vaccine nationalism and protectionism on where the doses go and wherever they're being produced, whether they're being produced in Europe or in the United States, that is where the vaccines are going. And there's increasing uh, questions about vaccine availability. To talk more about what all of that means for you and me, I'm pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, who's a vaccine expert and a family physician. Uh, welcome. I'm wondering what you made of the announcement about uh, domestic production today, doctor. It's very exciting, but it's not an investment in now. I wish we had the vaccines right now, like everyone else. At the earliest, you're talking about the facility for which the federal government has now invested $125 million. It may be up and running as early as July. Now, keep that in mind, because we're promised vaccines for March, right? Enough vaccines for everyone, a million people by March, and everyone by September. Well, this facility will not be running until July. So that's that's a lot of time in between. And that's why Canada has has purchased 52 million doses of Novavax. But the big question remains, what are we going to have up front now? And the the reporting, as we look around the world, is, you know, countries like the U.K., which does not, as far as I understand, have domestic production, uh, has far outpaced us in terms of percentage of the population. And there's increasing scrutiny about what do we have now and why must we wait until the end of March or the end of September as the government continues to promise. This is actually not a new problem. Turn the clock back 50 years. That's right, 5-0 when 80% of Canada's vaccines and drugs were produced domestically. But what happened is we lost that capability in the 1980s. This much preceded Prime Minister Trudeau. This was something that was long in place. And what wound up happening is the pandemic was on. So turn the clock back to summer. They did invest money, $44 million, to upgrade that facility in Montreal. But guess what? It didn't pass good manufacturing practices. In other words, we were out of practice. And so $125 million is going to be shoveled into this facility in Montreal, the National Research Council facility, which should be ready in July. And at that point, it can start producing some 2 million doses a month. So keep your fingers crossed on that. That's not an investment in now, though, as I say. That is going to take real time. Coming back to the the central promise of the government about the number of doses that we would get by the end of the Mar- end of March and everyone who wants it by September, do, do you see that still as a credible promise? You know, you're asking a family physician who's a vaccine researcher, and these are questions that involve more on a political level what's going to happen. What I can tell you is that the EU has invested billions of dollars into the development of these vaccines and say, we're first. 
We have every right to be first. We purchased this. The United States is making a similar rallying cry because it paid for warp speed development. Again, billions of dollars were put in. Canada's mechanism, Canada's opera, uh, the way we operated was we took vaccines and we purchased, pre-purchased a number of vaccines with different mechanisms. I don't think we foresaw that the countries would be saying, we've invested, these vaccines are now ours, we're first. And I think that was a shortcoming. I think ultimately we should never let go of our domestic capabilities of vaccine production. But that's kind of a bygone now. We, we can only do, we can only look forward and try to build for the future. And that's what these, that's what these dollars are about. I'm speaking with Dr. Ira Skorfinkel, who is a family physician and expert on vaccines. And part of the other announcement that was made by the Prime Minister today was a $64 million fund to make sure that you'll know when and where you can get vaccinated. And this is the part that stood out to me. Why, this is a quote from the Prime Minister, why it's such a good idea to get your shot. In other words, uh, a information campaign to combat vaccine hesitancy. How much of that are you seeing? How much of that is a concern, especially in the early going when we're thinking, well, we don't have any vaccine at all? Well, this is, this is just it. At this point in time, the number of people who want the vaccine far, far outnumber those who don't. You know, so if we're to look at some of the latest research done on it, some 80% of Canadians are very happy to get vaccinated. So vaccine hesitancy is not what we're dealing with at the moment. It's in the background. It is something that we will have to contend with. Personally, I view vaccine hesitancy as a form of getting informed consent from patients. Most people who are vaccine hesitant, they're they're not anti-vaxxers. These are individuals who want questions answered. And they're reasonable questions. They're the same questions that Health Canada is asking. They're the same questions that I as a physician ask. You know, so what we need to do is say, let's see what science says about exactly those questions and answer those questions to the best of our ability and own it when we don't know the answers to those questions. So that's what good science does. And that's in, in total opposition to what a true anti-vaxxer is, which is only a very small percentage. The anti-vaxxers, on the other hand, they look and they, they're kind of anti-science. You know, so despite that vaccines save millions of lives every year, they basically ignore the science. So it's a small percentage of people who fall into that second category. Vaccine hesitancy is another word for patient engagement, and I'm happy to engage. I I get a lot of calls here uh, at the station when when we open up the phone lines and we talk about vaccines, and and people have, you know, some some similar concerns, and I wonder if you might address some of them. And, and the, the first one is the one that I hear all the time, that this is just far too fast. There's no possible way that we will really know the long-term impacts of any of these vaccines because we've rushed this out in an attempt to get the world vaccinated ahead of what good science would tell us. It's interesting. Warp speed development is a double-edged sword in a lot of people's mind. But what they don't realize, what accelerated Getting vaccine into arms is largely logistic stuff. So we're talking about making sure the vials were ready, the, you know, making sure the manufacturing facilities were in place, 
making sure how we were going to ship those doses were in place. So pre-purchasing vaccines, funding the research for vaccines. And this sounds terrible to say, but the numbers were so horrible in the U.S. that that itself accelerated the research. So what winds up happening, normally we have to wait for people to get naturally infected, and that takes a long time. But in the United States, it did not take a long time. People were dropping in droves, and that's nasty to say, but it really did help accelerate the research. But the research practices themselves did not change. What wound up happening is that health ministers, like actually Health Canada, not health ministers, Health Canada, had done what's called rolling reviews. So instead of waiting for all of the information to become available all at once, as it normally would, and that can take years to get all of the research, they were reviewing it as as vaccine makers could provide it. So as soon as vaccine makers had more information, they were providing it to Health Canada, and Health Canada was doing reviews as the information was becoming available from these vaccine makers. A huge time saver. That's what accelerated research actually meant. Getting the logistics in place, the manufacturing in place, the shipping, getting all the stuff in place, the rolling reviews, because each one of these normally takes a lot of time. And then add to it the wonderful technology that we now have. Everything from the fact that the China, too much to its credit, gave the genome of the virus to the world. With it. That was back a year ago, 13 months ago. So as soon as they had it, it was given to the world to work on. You know, so all of these things, understanding what the genome of the spike protein is, because that's how a lot of these vaccines are made. You know, so we cannot take for granted any one of these things. And this all helped to accelerate the research. The research itself is what it is. And while I recognize we still have a way to go, these, all these trials, by the way, Pfizer, Moderna's trial, Novavax, this is all based on preliminary data. The trials are going on for at least another couple more years to watch. But the vast majority of side effects will take, will know and understand them within three months of what, what that vaccine is. Now what we're talking about is rare side effects that may pop up, you know, a long time later. And that's why the National Vaccine Registry is so important. Because if there are signals or if there are unusual recalls, we're in a position to act on them quickly. That's fascinating. And uh, just, I think that's the best answer I have heard to that question so far. Thank you so much, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. I appreciate it. Uh, Thanks again for coming on. Many thanks for having me on. Dr. Iris Gorfinkel is a vaccine expert in a family physician and laid out there, I think, in in a a very stark way. Answered that, that very, very clearly about why there was such speed and why we were able to get a vaccine as quickly as we could, but also... The, the big question is, is, is why are we making announcements about vaccine production in this country at this point? We knew that this is where we were going to be. And I asked the doctor the following question about whether she believed the promise from the federal government about a million by the end of uh, March. I'll have to double check that number, but all of us who want it, by the end of September. That has been the key promise of the federal government. 
Starting yesterday at Pearson Airport, if you fly in and you arrive, the province of Ontario requires you to get a test when you land. If you don't get a test, you get yourself a ticket. Uh, This is in advance of the new federal measures which are coming, which will say that once you come in, if you're not on essential business, then you have to go and quarantine at a hotel at your own cost and wait for your test to come back. But that is not in place yet. And we had Sean O'Shea, our global news reporter, out there at Pearson yesterday. And he joins me on the line right now. Uh, Sean, where are you right now? I'm in a parking lot, which is my second home out uh, not far from Terminal 3 right now in our news truck. We, we just, so we just missed you right at the top there, Sean. Where did you, sorry, let me just interrupt you. We just missed you right at the top there. Where did you say you were? I said we're out at Terminal 3 at Pearson Airport, uh, just off uh, off property. Okay, so as you say, I, I I don't think there's anybody that's been to Pearson more often than you in the last year. You just you're just constantly out there. So you've been there a lot. You know what it's like. What was it like there yesterday when you were doing this reporting about uh, the new testing regime that has been brought in by the Ford government? Through the day, pretty normal. Uh, not even that many people. But then by six o'clock, when we were doing our live report, three flights came in, and they were the first batch of one flight after another queuing up to go through this testing process and it was i wouldn't call it mayhem necessarily but it was really crazy uh an australian traveler who came out and said it's nuts in there there's no social distancing and there wasn't uh people were cheek to jowl queued up for this mandatory testing uh and then we went back and talked to a number of people who were on a veradero cuba flight and a an evacuation flight because transat was flying down to bring people back uh right now and talk to a lot of Canadians who go down there for extended periods of time. And it was quite interesting because a lot of people thought that they had been so over-tested down there, tested to get there, tested at the resort, tested to get on the plane. They couldn't understand why there would be any possibility of a positive test once they got back to Pearson and were tested yet again. Because the rule being that they would have to have a test within, I believe, is it 72 hours, uh, Sean, that you have to have a test to come back into the country right now? Exactly. And and many of the people said that they'd been tested at the resort when they got to the resort. The other thing, Alan, is that in Cuba, a number of these resorts, Cuba is so Canadian dependent, as you know, uh, but a lot of these resorts uh, are virtually empty because people have not been going down because the government has said, don't go down. So the people who were down there told me that they were virtually alone. They were eating by themselves. They were on the beach by themselves. They were virtually isolated. I talked to one woman who'd planned to get married to a man down there, long planned. That got canceled. And, and, and you know, many were very upset at Trudeau for uh, telling people to get home, for putting in the rule that would say that you'd have to go to the COVID uh, hotel and spend $2,000. Because these weren't the people who were going down there for the purposes of a quick week away. These are people who would typically go away for three weeks, three months, and they're coming back early because they didn't want to take a chance of, of missing something. So they didn't feel that they deserved a, a sort of a stigma that is attached to anybody who you know might be heading coming back from and, a sun and destination. And that's exactly you're right. And that's off the, the the typical sympathy out there because we've uh, there's a poll out and we've talked to a lot of people. Most people, I think, and I was listening to the Kelly Contreras show this morning on this as well. Most people feel, look, this is no time to go away, right? This is time to stay home. You know, we shouldn't be worried about people that are abroad. And some of these people get it. But when it came to testing, people were telling me, look, we, we're safe. We're, we're okay. We shouldn't be 
uh, stuck with the stigma, as you say. And a lot of people were trying to get out as quickly as possible. They don't know when the federal government rule is going to take effect and they're going to have to stay in an airport hotel at a cost of $2,000 per person or so. So, you know, as frustrated as many were, they were getting out while they could get out. And that's what they were, that's what they were doing last night. Uh, so you're, you're back again today. Um, did, did we get any response from, from Pearson on the, the crowding issue that you saw with the new provincial testing regime? Not so far. And in, to, in fairness, uh, the queues were set up, uh, the lines were laid out, and there were lots of security and police. But the reality is there are a lot of flights coming in now at certain times. And whereas normal, people would pick up their bags and get out of town get to their car and get into isolation. Now people have to hang around for a period of an hour or so while they get registered, while they get tested. And it's it's atypical to what we've seen out here at the airport in the last 10 months. The last 10 months, people have come in and left. Um, and again, a lot, a lot of sympathy for a lot of these people. I understand that. People left when they uh, probably shouldn't have in the view of a lot of people. But here we are, and, uh, and many people say that coming back here, standing in those lines which were crowded, as well as coming back to Canada now, probably less safe than where many of them were uh, in places like Havana and on Veradero. Yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting perspective, especially as we're creating this new bottleneck at the airport. And, and what I, I haven't been able to get an idea, and maybe you know, is I, I know we don't have a date for the new federal program, you know, when you have to go to the hotel. But what does that do to the provincial program that's currently in place? Does it just completely evaporate when the other program comes in play? It, it's a good question. We don't have a date yet either, but I mean, you're not, not going to have two tests. You're going to have one test, and I'm, as far as I know, the federal program will supplant this one. Uh, this is in place, and we should say as well that when you come to Toronto uh, and have to take that test or face a, a fine, uh, you don't get the results right away. So once you've taken the test, you're off and you're on your way. The company that's administering these tests told me yesterday that uh, people have to register uh, an account online and then they will get their test results within 48 hours. So let's have no illusion. People are coming into Toronto. They're getting tested, but they're still uh, departing the airport and supposed to go home for the 14-day isolation. But it's not a matter of rapid testing here where you're finding out the results right away. That's not how it works. People are getting tested, then they're going home into isolation. Right, so it's possible they they could have a positive test, still go home, break quarantine. Um, it it is, it is, but it's interesting. I'm I'm not sure how many how many of the average person listening has been tested, but as as many of the people told us, they've perhaps been tested more than most. As I said, tested at the resort, tested it on the plane, tested to come back. So in the view of some of these people, and of course that's their view, um, they've been very well tested. So none of the people I spoke to thought that there was even the remotest possibility they'd have a positive test considering all the tests they just had to be able to get back on that plane and get back home. The one other thing that, that I haven't been able to figure out, too, is with the $750 fine if you don't take this test. So, like, I, I wonder when the new federal program comes into play, like, are you going to be able to say, no, you know what, I'll take the $750 ticket instead of the $2,000 hotel <laughs> bill? <laughs> so- Somebody emailed me that question last night, Alan, after our story, and I'm pretty sure that that won't be as quick as that because under the federal rules, you know, you've got the Quarantine Act. Um, with a lot of the violations, you face the possibility of jail time. It's not a matter of, it's not a parking ticket when it comes to the federal laws. We're going to nail that down, but I, I'm pretty sure that you won't be able to just walk away and say, I'm going to go home and take the ticket. Uh, you could do that under the circumstances right now, 
uh, at the airport. But when the federal program kicks in, I'm pretty sure that that won't be the case. But we're going to definitely have reporting on that tonight. Sean O'Shea uh, at his second home at Pearson International. Always great to talk to you, Sean. Thanks for being on. See you on the news tonight, Alan. Thank you. Sean O'Shea is a Global News reporter, and uh, as he said, you can see his news story tonight on Global News at 5.30 and 6. Tom Moore, the 100-year-old World War II veteran whose efforts to raise millions of dollars for the U.K.'s National Health Service made him a universally adored icon during the first wave of COVID-19, has died in hospital after he contracted COVID-19. Known affectionately as Captain Tom, Moore raised almost $45 million by walking laps of his garden last year. His exploits united in the frozen country in lockdown made him an unlikely celebrity, earning him a military promotion and a knighthood from Queen Elizabeth and a number one single. Moore was taken to hospital on Sunday because of breathing problems after being treated for pneumonia. His death was announced today. It is with great sadness that we announce the death of our dear father, Captain Sir Tom Moore, the family said in a statement. The last year of our father's life was nothing short of remarkable. He was rejuvenated and experienced things he'd only dreamed of. Whilst he'd been in so many hearts for just short a t- so, so short a time, he was an incredible father and grandfather, and he will stay alive in our hearts forever. Buckingham Palace has said the Queen has sent a private message to Moore's family. Moore was unfortunately not able to be vaccinated against COVID-19. He would have been. He would have been perhaps close to the front of the queue, considering his age. But he was unable to get vaccinated because of treatment for pneumonia. Captain Tom Moore, 100 years old. An inspiration. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.